97% of salespeople are missing this one thing that if they only knew it would allow them to close 75% more sales. It has nothing to do with charisma, the gift of gab, or whatever else you've been told. Because if you're trying to convince your customer, that means they don't want to buy, which means you've already lost the sale. What sales professionals do is sell customers exactly what they want to buy. They work with the customer to uncover their current challenges, the consequences of those challenges, and how that's impacting them. They then help the prospect describe the ideal solution to their problems, what that looks like, and how that perfect outcome will impact them. And once they can picture that perfect outcome, price is irrelevant. That's right. Sales professionals sell customers exactly what they want to buy because it's easier dealing with a happy customer than dealing with a customer who felt sold. So here's the deal. I explain everything in my live two-day sales workshop, June 14th and 15th in my office. Go to closemoresales.com workshop and you'll be able to close more sales as soon as you get back. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we've got Jimmy Vreeland with Vreeland Capital. And he, flew in, and he flew in from St. Louis, Missouri to talk about how his company has flipped 500 plus turnkey houses in the last four years. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer. And every month, we help hundreds of people buy more houses with deeper margins. If you, want more, if you want more info about that, DM me the word sales on Instagram. And I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. And the information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, I promise that you will become one. Uh, this show is also brought to you by our company, InvestorLift. Get access to over 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in Disruptors to get 10% off. And if you get value today, please tag a friend below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And uh, we are actively hiring. So if you guys are looking for a job in the Phoenix market, do send us, uh, do reach out, send us a message. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Jimmy to answer. You ready? Let's do this. All right. So first, I'm really excited to have you out yeah, here. Yeah, me too. Especially all the energy you got. So anyway. <laughs> I'll try uh, to contain it. <laughs> uh, first question is, what got you into real estate? Like everybody else, rich dad, poor dad. <laughs> I, read it, uh, I read it in a hooch in the middle of Iraq in 2000. So for less, less sophisticated, what's a hooch? It's like a, a tent. A tent. So imagine me reading that little purple book uh-huh. in the middle of the desert in a tent. All right. And just even though I'm like in, in a complete wasteland, I'm just like cash flow quadrant, cash flow more than expenses. Like this is so, like a new world to me. What country were you in? Iraq. So you're in Iraq. Yeah. So it's like it's like in the movies where like you're in the desert. Yeah. And there's winds blowing and yep. these tents and there's little Jimmy in there. Yeah. Well, not little Jimmy, but yeah. <laughs> Jimmy's reading Rich Dad Poor Dad. I would I would go on a a, a mission or go on a patrol, and then I'd the whole time I'd be like, man, I got to get back to that book. Yeah. It was like a whole because before that book, I thought to be wealthy, you had to inherit it, mm-hmm. be an athlete, and I, I failed miserably at being that. That was my first initial try. Athlete? I, yeah. All I right. thought I could maybe do it being an athlete. Didn't work out. What sport? Uh, basketball and football. Okay. And so, and then, or be a genius inventor. Like, that's right when the iPod was coming out. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, I didn't recognize, re- you know, regular people could be become wealthy. <laughs> right. Until I read that book. And I was so in like, your mind, it was, I mean, it, I guess part of that book it was army. You're an army ranger. Yeah. And that was like the path. Well, I, I knew I wasn't going to make a career out of it, mm-hmm. but I had no idea what I was going to go, go do. Okay. So you read the book. Yeah. And then how did you start taking action right away? Or did you have to wait to get back? Like, how did that all work? So my mom and brother had actually sent it to me and they're like, we read this book. We're so excited. This mm-hmm. And like, my mom is like very high energy person. My brother's a surgeon, he's, he's very cerebral, mm-hmm. but so it, it passed Timmy's smart guy test. So me and my mom were like, yeah, we gotta try this. Yeah. And then I, 
you know, with everybody, yeah, not exactly complaining yet, but talking about interest rates going up, mm -hmm. they were like 7% then. And I'll never right. forget my mom who bought her first house in the 80s for a 12% interest rate. My mom's like, interest rates are 6%, we gotta buy. Mm -hmm. And so I, when you're deployed too, I was getting jump pay, combat pay, hazardous duty pay, and I wasn't paying taxes. And you, I was in the middle of the desert, couldn't spend any money. Mm -hmm. So I was sending all that cash back to them, and then they were buying the houses. Got it. So you guys jumped in right away. Yeah. Got it. Uh, how long until you got back to the States? Uh, or left for, service? Oh, I, would, I probably had three years left. Okay. And so each, every time I deploy, I buy two houses. <laughs> so your family was managing all this remotely? Yeah. Now, this is 2005, uh -huh. so you're buying these assets. How did the, 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 the turnaround affect you? They cash flowed the whole time. It didn't matter. Right. We weren't flipping. We were, we were, so my brother was in medical school at the time, mm -hmm. and so we were, we'd buy the houses and we'd rent them out to like three med, medical students at a time. Got it. It was, it was, like, it was, it was my mom's idea. It was genius. Mm -hmm. So we'd get three tenants instead of one. All right. And so we would, they cashed. The, um, the crash or whatever didn't, uh, didn't really hit our radar at all. And this is all in St. Louis? Yeah. Okay. So, um, because we're in Phoenix market, we got to experience the entire roller coaster ride. I think we hit the highest yep. and the lowest, but across the Midwest, it seemed to be kind of like... There were like in the, in like the D class and C class neighborhoods, mm -hmm. you were buying stuff for 90 and it was really worth 30. So it hit, it was weird. It hit the like C-class areas, but the A's and B's, like sure, everybody's value of their house went down, mm -hmm. but not catastrophically. Right. And that's, that's what I love about St. Louis. I, I just, like an investor will come in and be like, what's so good about St. Louis? I'm like, nothing. It's, a, <laughs> it's exceptionally mediocre. It won't go too high in the booms and it won't go that high in the, in the bust. I don't think anyone describes mediocrity as exceptional. You can be exceptionally mediocre. <laughs> that's phenomenal. It, uh, so then what hesitations did you initially face or, 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 you know, was there any kind of doubt that you experienced when you were first starting? Because you said your brother was a cerebral guy, so like yeah. you passed that test. Like, did you have anything else kind of get in the way? Well, then we like, we, then we would have inner family squabbles on rehab budgets and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my mom wanted quality and then I wanted to spend nothing. And then my brother was generally in the middle, but I would say, you know, when you first get started with everybody, getting we got hosed by a couple contractors, we got, you know, all the mistakes where we bought the wrong houses, all that type of stuff. So, you guys, you guys read the book. So people kind of approach things differently, right? Like some people will study, study, study. Some people will go to a seminar, right? Which we yeah. don't necessarily encourage, right? Some people go that direction. Yeah. You just kind of just started buying houses. Yeah. All right. So like, was there like a realtor involved or like, how did you start buying these houses? Yeah, I mean, that was another mistake we made, like, you know, working with a realtor who would work with investors mm -hmm. and then that, um, but I, I'm a 10 quick start. Right. I need to, for those of you who don't know what the Colby test is, you got, what is it? It's implementer, quick start, fact finder, and I follow through, follow through. And I am like a one on everything else except quick start. <laughs> so I need about this much information and I'm going to do something. Right. But you had the Cerebro brother and he was like all, all about it too? Yeah. Got it. So was it like a partnership between the three of you yeah. or how did that work? Like it was an LLC and all that stuff. Got it. Okay. So uh, what was 
your first major struggle or challenge in buying these houses? So that one, you know, it was kind of like passive and like I had another job and I had a other focus, like the big, so then I came home from the army um, and then the crash happened. Like I got out of the army the day Bear Stearns went under. <laughs> and I'll just remember like, like the guy I worked for at the time was like, you can't get out, you shouldn't get out, the economy's gonna crash. And I was like, no, it's not, I'll be fine. <laughs> that was my same attitude. That yeah. And I didn't Turns know. out. We were, everybody was all right. <laughs> yeah. And so it was getting, then getting in the, the corporate job and getting in the corporate world and still buying. That, mm -hmm. that was a struggle. So explain to me, you're doing well, you're buying these properties, you're cash flowing. Yep. Why not jump straight into just buying more properties? I didn't know wholesaling existed. I didn't know flipping full time. You know, back then you saw, uh, you know, A&E flipped this house. Mm -hmm. Like there was a guy, I think he was in Charleston. And I, I distinctly remember from my last deployment in Afghanistan, like emailing him, like, I am Jimmy Vreeland. I would like to work for your company. Yeah. And he never emailed me back. Right. So, Okay, so I guess the cash flow wasn't enough. And yeah, I mean, we had like eight rentals by the time I got out of the army. And uh, I didn't understand there was a thing as wholesaling. I didn't understand. Um, I understood there was flipping full time, but I thought it was too risky because it was 2008. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. It's, it never, quite frankly, it never crossed my mind. And I, I think there was, you know, because you spent time in the corporate world too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of thought it was go to school, get a good job make a bunch of money and then maybe one day you can start your own thing. Right. So it wasn't even my hitting my radar that you could do that. Got it. So what did you, uh, what was your corporate job? I sold uh, medical equipment like knee and hip replacements. Okay. How'd you do there? Good. All right. Like we did well. <laughs> <laughs> Better than you did in the army? Uh, yeah. I mean, you mean cash wise? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So how long did you continue doing that before you uh, pivoted back into real estate? Uh, eight years. But the whole time I was picking up rentals. Okay. So I would get a bonus check, pick up a rental, get a bonus check, do a private loan, get a bonus check, pick up, you know, pick up a private rental. But the problem was I was reading everything Kiyosaki then mm -hmm. did because I did get out of the army. I did come home and we did do a weekend seminar. And I, I can't say that the weekend seminar didn't work. Right. But if you ask my mom, she's like, those sons of bitches, they took our money. And they were just <laughs> trying to sell us into a higher level program. Uh, but then, like, I saw lease options there for the first time. Yeah. And so I, I was able to get enough out of that weekend seminar to stay actionable. Um, weekend seminar. So we're talking like 100 bucks, not like 25 grand. No, like, you know, I went to the Thursday thing and mm -hmm. I got my free lunch. Mm -hmm. And then I gave them the seven grand. Right. And showed up for the weekend thing. Mm -hmm. I think we bought the coaching because I had like a, yeah. I had, a, I had a, a, you know, a rich dad coach for like six months. Got it. And he just watched us fill out our spreadsheets and do nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's different ways of coaching. So right. that was one way of doing it. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're working, you're having a lot of success here. What was the reasons if, because by this point, you should have seen that there was a way to make money here. And I'm not saying I did the right way. I kind of yeah. call it like my transition to becoming a realtor, kind of like my lost decade. Cause like I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, I was like, oh, I should buy passive income. And then I became a real estate agent. Like that's not what the book said at all. Right. But I got into real estate to make active income. So did you? Oh, well he also says in the book, and then he was a Vietnam pilot. 
So I saw similarities. He was a veteran. He fought in a war. I, I was a veteran, fought in a war. And he's like, he went to Rich Dad and he went to Xerox mm -hmm. and learned how to sell. Got it. And so I knew getting out that I wanted to do a sales job. And then there was a, when you get out of the military, there's like headhunters who find you jobs. Mm -hmm. And there was like, hey, your brother's in med school and you want to sell. And there's a West Point football guy who's running a sales department in St. Louis. You want to do that? I was like, let's do it. <laughs> and that was, all I needed to know was I would learn how to sell. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my brother would tutor me to right. whatever I needed to know. Um, so what was the... You said eight years you worked in that career. Yeah. And I, I keep harping on this because there's a couple different things, right? Because there's a lot of people that listen to the show that actively have jobs and they're like, when's the right time to quit? But B, also, you're a quick start. Right. So usually you don't need that much information <laughs> to, right. to pivot. Oh, well, okay. So I would do the timeline real quick. Yeah. 2008, get out of the Army. 2009, meet Susie. 2010, or 2009, meet and marry Susie. 2009, meet and marry Susie. 2010, Maria came along. In December, January 12, Bubba, uh, 14, Tommy, and then 16, Johnny. Got it. So the family was growing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I, in my mind, I was like, I had a strike number. When my cash flow equaled my expenses, then I could quit. And that I, so to, you know, if you have people who are, still have W-2 jobs, mm -hmm. W-2 jobs are phenomenal if you want to be an in investor. Because you can get, all I had to do was breathe. I had to fog a mirror. And I had to go to Mr. Banker, hey, see my W-2? And they're like, 100 grand for you. <laughs> so I, yeah. I kept the W-2 going as well, so I could get bank financing, because mm -hmm. you got to get your 20 loans from the government. Then I could go to all the commercial lenders and get, I struggled to get funding once I quit my W-2. Right. And so I was, 2016, we worked up to 60 rentals. How many? 60. 60? Yeah. That was uh, financed by some sort of bank or another? Yes. That's pretty impressive. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And it, like, it got hot and heavy, like 13, 14, 15. Because mm -hmm. the corporate world, like I had stopped growing, I had stopped learning, I was trading my time. And like I had, I had checked out. And when I'm checked out, like I'm really, yeah. you know, you had a, you had a, you know, your story of checking out is, <laughs> is very amusing to me. So I think you can empathize. I can definitely relate. So, um, you wanted to get a sales job. That was what Kiyosaki said to go, mm -hmm. to go do. Uh, what valuable skills did you learn at that company that um, found, you found useful later on in your career? Like selling is a skill. Right. And persuading people is a skill. And then my clients were high net worth individuals. Mm -hmm. So I was able, I understood what their pains were. I understood what their problems were. So it was so easy for me to raise private money. Yeah. Because I'd be with a doctor all day, like doing knee replacements, and he'd just be, He'd be bitching about the IRS, and he's like, "Why am I doing this? I don't even make any money till it's like three o'clock in the afternoon." And uh -huh. I was like, "You're right, but maybe if you lent me some money to go buy some real estate, you could make some money." Yeah. And then that—that's how I started getting like my first funding. Got it. So uh, I heard an interesting story, right, um, yeah. uh, from Collective Genius. We're both members in Collective Genius. Yep. Uh, that basically, you guys were supposed to be quitting, but there was something holding you back. <laughs> yeah. And there was one thing that was holding you back. What was it? So this is a story about once I started getting like, once I got to like the 50th rental, I started getting antsy. Mm -hmm. And then we had, when we had our fourth baby, Johnny, um, I'm, I had a substitute helping me with the, the surgery and the kid messed up. And so I got like my new baby in my arms and a doctor's just calling me, like reaming me for this. 
And this is what I'll always love about my wife. Like fourth kid, we had four kids under five and she's just like, you should really quit your job now. Yeah. And so, uh, I'm sorry, what was your? What, what was the story that, that got oh, you to yeah. quit? So, you know, things were going well and, but like Stryker did such a good job of creating a meathead environment where like a competitive environment. And so you would work all year Sure, you would make a bonus, and then, yeah, 50% of it would get taxed, but then I'd get the plaque at the end of the year. I'd get the sales award. <laughs> and so, so Susie, like, Johnny's, like, three months old, and then I'm coming home, like, dog-tired, and I'm, I'm, I'm bitching about Stryker, and she's like, why don't you quit? And I was like, uh, I like the plaques. And she's like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, because, I, I mean, this was a conscious thought I have. You know, like, you can be embarrassed about a lot of the conscious thoughts you have. I'm like, but I like competing. I mm -hmm. You want to win. Yeah, I want to win. And then, like, I liked winning. Yeah. And I liked getting up on stage and being the, the sales guy. And she's like, why don't you quit? Why don't you, you know, she's, like, driving me to quit. Like, like you know, she starts challenging my manhood at that point. And <laughs> I just like, I like the plaques. And then she's like, what? I, I was like, I like the plaques. I like the sales award. She's like, can, uh, can you use, what kind of language can you use on this podcast? Uh, I mean, is it family friendly? I'll do, I'll keep go it family. for it. You can do what you got to do. She's like, I will give you a freaking plaque. I will do whatever it has to do, but just send in your resignation. And so I was like, you promise? Like, like you're not messing with me, right? Yeah. And so every, at the end of every year now, I get a, a plaque from the family and they go up on the wall. But I didn't, I wouldn't take that corporate jump until I could get my plaques. I love like the, the symbol, the symbolism, but the, you're right though, like the competitive nature, especially in sales, right? Like yeah. we all want the plaque, the belt, the award, whatever things we put on our, uh, above our desk, whatever, like it means something. Yeah. Right. So, but I love, I love that story. Like if it's you and me playing basketball before CG, mm -hmm. like why the whistle's blown? Like I will do anything to win. I don't care. <laughs> like we'll be friends afterwards, but yeah. I want to win. Right, that's, how I, that's why I picked you the last time we played. Yeah. Um, so that, on that note, um, what I, I thought was funny because you posted this in the Facebook group. So you bought something to get better at basketball. Oh, yeah, the dribble up. <laughs> how old are you? I'm 42, but my, Me hand, too. my handle still needs some work. So Now, I'm, granted, I, I have an 11-year-old and a 10-year-old and 7-year-old who play, mm -hmm. and I, I want them to encourage to do homework basketball. Because, mm -hmm. like, when we were kids, you had to, like, Put a blindfold on and you know i would dribble around chairs we didn't have yeah. technology to get better with your handle right so i'm actively looking for a basketball coach to someone that just can help me work in my game but i can't find anyone there's not like some asu co a somebody there's, who played for asu or something down there's there? nobody that will work with old people like they're, they're all like if they're any good they're working with like aau kids or something really? like that yeah um get one of the aau kids to work with you yeah there you go so Tell me about after you took the leap. Did you have any struggles after you took the leap? Yeah, that was the worst time of my life. Really? <laughs> <It was> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about that. Yeah. I thought, so, you know, my whole paradigm had been shaped by rich dad, poor dad, right? Mm -hmm. Cash flow, equal expenses, boom, you're wealthy. And that's just... Financial freedom. Yeah, you don't have to worry about anything anymore. Yeah, you're financially free. And I'm like, whoa, my worries didn't start until I did that. Yeah. So... Um, stop with 60 rentals and then you know, I had to start hiring a team. I had to start building a team. And even though I played on teams in college and played on teams in the military, I'd been a, a sole individualist as a, as a corporate sales guy. So Grant, I had a background to fall back on to start building a team and leadership skills and everything. But it was, I thought I would like, 
I thought I would quit my job, be financially free, and then, you know, the rentals and business would take care of themselves. Yeah. And it seems like a natural conclusion. Yeah. And then straight line success from here yeah. on out. Yeah. That, uh, I've come up with some dumb ideas in my day, <laughs> but that, quite frankly, was the dumbest. So how was it a dumb idea? It's, it's just not how it works. But I mean, like, what was like the first hiccup or the first speed bump once you quit your job? Oh, the first? Or the first major one? Yeah. Uh, probably, so I had a partner at the time. All right. And so he was doing most of the operations and I was just supposed to be the money guy, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we had that, we had, had a business divorce, that was a major hookup. Like, I'm gonna have to learn how to do acquisitions, I'm gonna have to do operations, because I was just raising the money and then selling the houses. So having to dig in and learn that part of the business, like, that was very scary to me. And at this point, I had like $4 million worth of private debt. So I had to figure it out. I so had, had to make it work. Yes. So did you know this guy before you quit your job? Yeah, he, I did. I started doing private loans with him in the beginning. Okay. So he had some sort of track record. Yeah. And then you partnered with him. He was supposed to run operations. You were raising capital. And then you guys are splitting everything 50-50. Yeah. Okay. And then where exactly did that go off the rails? He, it's kind of another funny story, but we were out uh, wakeboarding all day. And then that night he's like, oh, I'm going to move to California on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so basically over the weekend, yeah. he quit. Yeah. And so like, this sounds like he, he did something nefarious. He did something bad. Like it was me. I could have re seen the writing on a wall. I could have been doing other things. Mm -hmm. I could have been checking into acquisitions and operations and learning it. Yeah. I was on the hook for that money. Like I should have been doing that. Right. Like this, the whole business divorce, like it's on me. Okay. So what lessons did you take from that? Like on top of like, you know, learning it, like yeah. any leadership lessons, management lessons from there? That you have to lead, you have to manage. And, and once I stopped trying to run away from that responsibility, it became so much fun. Yeah. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I, now I, I love it. Like I, I love the team we've built. And I, I think I had some like residual stuff from the army. We're like, oh man, I don't want to lead again. Last time I led, I was getting shot at. So well, that's what I was about to ask because, you know, uh, you and I uh, both have learned from uh, the SEAL team leaders. Right. Right. And you probably had a lot of similar training back when you were an army ranger. Right. So you already have the leadership training within you. You didn't want? Did you think it didn't translate? Did you not want to take I advantage didn't want of it? To use, I want. I, I didn't want to use it. Okay. I was just, I was, uh, running, running away from it. Okay. Is there a reason behind it? Is there a story behind it or? I think part of it is the whole like rich dad paradigm that mm -hmm. you're financially free. You're done. You shouldn't have to do this anymore. Like oh. I struggled in the army. I struggled in the corporate world. I'm free now. Yeah. So I, and I can totally relate to that. You know, like my, my background, you know, went to ASU engineer, got my graduate degree, right. In electrical engineering. And I remember like, when I was at Intel, they was like, hey, Steve, you know, there's this seven habits of highly effective workshop, seven habits of highly effective people workshop. You should go attend. I was like, why? Right. <laughs> I did my time. I already did what I, I've studied all I had to study. I learned everything I need to learn. Now's the time to just kind of like this is this next chapter of my story or chapter of my life. Right. It's not how that works. No, it is. I know what I have found that it's just not fun that mm -hmm. way. It's so much more fun if you just, you know, we could talk about um well the, the way i started first embracing it was daniel marcos at cg 
-hmm. where he shows that, hey, if you want to scale to a different level, I, you know, you, you look on Instagram, scaling means like a rocket ship, you're going to go. Oh, yeah, it's easy. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> you just got to put in the work. You just got to grind. All right. But really what it means when you scale, you, you dip. You go into a valley of death for a mm -hmm. while. And as soon as I just, one, saw that that's straight line success is never possible. It's a big lie. Yeah. And that you valley of the death or go into your valleys of death or like your um, rites of passage. Mm -hmm. I just, my whole paradigm shifted. When did you first learn that? About valley of death? Mm -hmm. 2018 uh, Q3 meeting at Collective Genius. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, because he spoke about it then. Uh, so for those that are listening, can you elaborate a little bit on what the valley of death means? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, scaling up, the book Scaling Up, Vern Harnish, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a graph in like the first or second chapter, but if you want to scale up, you're going to go into a valley of death first. You're going to, whether it be a, a revenue dip or a personal challenge, psychological challenge, not knowing if you can do something. Big profit dip. Yeah, you're going, you're going to dip. Yeah. And, and so at the time, I had probably... Um, the business divorce happened once uh, we started really getting into turnkey flipping. And so zero to 30 flips were awesome. Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh my God, I'm a genius. I finally <laughs> figured this out. It's, we're gonna, but. So everything was, Kiyosaki said it was gonna be, it was just yeah, my success. I was just like, I just had to keep going. Yeah. And then, um, then we're like, all right, well, we wanna, instead of doing 30 flips a year, we wanna do 100, so let's get a project manager. Let's get some more crews. Let's start that level of scale. Absolutely, and that's not even really scaling. That's just trying harder. Mm -hmm. Do more work. Yeah, that broke me because I couldn't coordinate action at that level at that point. Yeah. And so then when the partner left, I'm just like, how? Oh, he left in the middle of the valley of death. Because he thought we were a straight line success too. That I can check out now. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And so it was this. So I talked to Larry about it at SEAL Team Leaders, but the pressure of having to make it work because the debt we are in, and then the fact that I didn't see it, that we were still going, getting better, but we were getting better, but we were failing so hard every day, but we were still flipping houses, but then I didn't understand cash management. And so it's just like every punch in the face that I was gonna get, I, I was taking all at once. Right. And then I, I, I wasn't able to articulate until I talked to Larry about it, but I'm like, dude, I had not felt that bad since Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and I had felt guilty about saying that. And I was like, I don't mean to be disrespectful to veterans, and like, I only could pr really say this to Larry, and he's like, Jimmy, that is a very common experience, and he's like, at least overseas, you had your team, you had your guys, like it sounds like you just had you and Susie during all this, Yeah. and it, that's true. But it, right. And I felt guilty for a long time saying that feeling is comparable to combat, but it just is what it is. Right. Well, I mean, for you, right? Just as a human being, like this is what yeah. you can best relate it to. I don't think there's anything to feel bad about. Right. Um, it's just what you can compare it to. And I, but I'm just like, how can business feel like combat? And I, I was just like, I don't know, but it does. Yeah. So was that, would you say then, of all the different challenges, that was the, the biggest uh, challenge as far as like the valley of death? Yeah, that was, that, that was rock, rock bottom. Got it. Oh, and at the same time, because I was on straight lines of sex to get rich, we were doing $150,000 rehab on our house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna do it, you gotta do it right. Right. You gotta go, go big. If, so, you, if I'm gonna mess something up, I will mess it all up. I'm not yeah. just gonna make a few little mistakes. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the same exact philosophy I subscribe to. My wife doesn't agree to it, agree with it, but you know, I've, I've kind of shared with her she doesn't like this definition. I've always said, like, it's the husband's job to go find trouble and the woman's job to help him keep him out of it. Yeah. She doesn't like it, but it's kind of what we're deep down, I guarantee we she's having fun. I think she's having fun. Right. So what were some other, because you're talking about, like, you're getting punched in all these different directions. And it was such a weird thing because I was doing what I'd always said I wanted to do, and I was getting better at it. It was just painful getting better. Mm-hmm. So what would you say were the top two or three lessons you learned in that experience? That one, don't feel guilty, that it's part of the game. And I'll never forget like going to CG when I was really deep down in it, I, wouldn't, I would clam up, I wouldn't talk to anybody about it. Mm-hmm. And then I think like two meetings later, like I came clean about everything we've been going through. And I could see like, like Micah's, you know, and Mark, all the guys I look up to, like looking at me and be like, ah, oh, this idiot finally gets it. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. this is part of the game, that you have to run to the valleys of death. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I was reading principles and I learned about hero's journey. And so my whole paradigm just, just shifted. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, this is such like a ridiculous comparison, you know, but I, when, I, when I was growing up, my younger brothers always watched like Dragon Ball Z. You ever watch this stuff? Yeah. Right, I, I kind of compare like the Valley of Deaths with all the little mini deaths that the, the, the Saiyans go through, right? Yeah. Like they die and they come back stronger or they get close to death and they come back stronger. They come closer to death, they come back stronger. I kind of feel like this Valley of Death is like, it's this test and you get stronger. You take another test and get stronger. So you went through how many valleys of death? Uh, uh, how many am I going through right now? I don't know, because the, the chart that Daniel showed, there was like four, Yeah, right? There were different tiers. Yeah. So. Um, but like, have you ever read Anti-Fragile? I have not read Anti-Fragile. Oh my God, that is, that, so I'm, and, they all, and when all this going on, I'm reading like all these great books. Mm-hmm. But the concepts of Anti-Fragile is, everybody knows what fragile is, right? Yeah. Like you get hit, you break. Mm-hmm. And then robust means like you're tough. Like you can take a punch in the face and come back up. You get an iron jaw. But now anti-fragile is your jaw gets stronger as it gets hit. Got it. And so Nassim Taleb's stance is that humans are inherently anti-fragile. Right. It's just like you were talking about Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. Like the more, the more as, long, as long as the pressure doesn't break you, mm-hmm. like you do plyometrics, right? Used to. <laughs> but plyometrics make you stronger. Right. Now if you did plyometrics from a two-story building, it would break you. <laughs> oh yeah. So you gotta stay in that zone where you can still keep getting stronger. Yeah. And you won't get broken. Yeah. So that makes total sense. Uh, so I've noticed that in some of the presentations you've done, uh, there's some strategic coach references. Yep. So I went back and through strategic coach, I wanna say like May of 18 to like February of 19. I think it was kind of like the, f- the four events I went to. Okay. When did you go through strategic coach? 17 and 18. 17, 18. Yep. So it seems like you took a lot of lessons there. Absolutely. Um, what were, I guess, what were some of the big eye-opening events or eye-opening items for you in going through that? Uh, 80% approach, Colby test, and uh, gap in the game. Gap in the game. So I think gap in the game is something that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with. Absolutely. Uh, can you elaborate on that? So Dan Sullivan, famous entrepreneur's coach, he has a concept called the gap in the game, and he learned it because he was dealing with high energy, hard driving entrepreneurs all the time and they all seem miserable. <laughs> like, none of them are happy. And we create masterminds to kind of share our stories. Yeah, and, and so he, he came to this conclusion that they are comparing themselves to their ideals and that they are not looking back to see where they came from. So yeah. 
The gap in the game, real simple, is never compare yourself to against others or ideals, and always measure from where you from where you started to where you are. Yeah, and I see that, uh, like even my own personal life. You know, like my wife and I, we have these you know, conversations where, like, she's looking like, you know, we haven't hit these goals yet, and I always have to say, but if you could just look backwards to see where we came from and look at the things we have accomplished, let's not compare ourselves to what other people are at. Let's compare it to where we were. Right. Right. I mean, like she still has PTSD from 2007, right? Really? Because right, I was a realtor. Yeah. In 2007, it was not a good time. Right. Right. So there were a lot of financial issues. So she still struggles with that. So yeah. I always have to go back to. So I think the gap in the game is true for um, entrepreneurs, and maybe even for, for yeah, I was gonna say maybe even for like people that are always comparing themselves, trying to keep up with the Joneses. I think I think the whole country in 2022 is in the gap. Yeah. Like everybody is comparing themselves or society to this ideal mm -hmm. and not looking back for how far we came from. Yeah. Well, I think there's that. And I think also, um, again, going back to SEAL team leaders, right? The conversations we've had with Larry Yatch, I mean, he's always talking about like, you guys are trying to measure yourself against some success that's unattainable. Right. Or not sustainable. Um, so let's see what else is there. So um, you've done. 500 turnkey flips in four years. Yeah. So if we were to, you know, I wanted to work with, with Jimmy and yeah. I want to start doing some turnkey opportunities, how would I get started? If you wanted to buy turnkey or if you wanted if to start I wanted providing to, turnkey? If I wanted to buy it and flip 500 turnkeys, right? Like what were some things I would have to do along the way to get to that kind of scale? Besides the, you know, the misery, like <laughs> or some lessons. <laughs> So you're talking about not buying turnkeys. You're not talking about turkeys. flipping yeah. turnkeys. Yeah. What would you have to do? Yeah. So you'd have to have a buyer's base. Mm -hmm. So I guess you're quite asking I guess how would so, you go zero so to So when you went from 30 to 100, yeah. what were some key steps that you took to go from 30 to 100? So we, I partnered with my two partners in our education business, mm -hmm. Cashflow Tactics. Mm -hmm. And so we started providing education as to why turnkey real estate works. So I, if you were going to sell turnkeys, you need to educate your client base. I would say that is, that is the f number one thing. Because of the education company, we have always had a, uh, a ton of buyers. So, um, so you need to be able to understand why investment real estate actually works. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we did a, I studied a bunch, while I was in the corporate world, I was bunching, studying a bunch of economics, studying everything I led in economics led me to real estate. Yeah, so one thing I saw, um, it was like, a, I think an old post of yours, was you were holding the, the Russell Brunson Two Comma Club, I think. Yep. Right, and this is directly related to building a client base? Yes. All right, can you talk about that, uh, what that two comma club is and how you got there and how that turned into a client base. Sure. So the two comma club, uh, my two partners, Ryan Lee and Brad Gibb in Cashflow Tactics, they are part of uh, Russell's highest level mastermind. And so the two comma club is an award you get if you sell a million dollars worth of anything through any funnel. Mm -hmm. And so we sold a million dollars worth of education through our Cashflow Tactics funnel and um, went to their big event and was able to get uh, up on stage with them. Mm -hmm. But we've, it's a passion of ours, it's fun, but we educate people on why, how to get wealthy on Main Street instead of Wall Street. Yeah. 
so there's a little bit of economics, personal finance, and then what we call the vault and turnkey real estate is like the cherry on top. Got it. So you're, the course is basically educating someone how to get wealthy without waiting the 30 years of working. Without, oh my God, traditional financial planning is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll get into that. Yeah. Sound really passionate about that. We'll get into that. Oh my God. So, uh, so relying on, on working for 30 years and relying on Wall Street. It was just another way for just regular, uh, you know, Joe Blow to, to become wealthy. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned that traditional financial planning is not so great. Let's talk yeah. about that. It's, where do you want to start? <laughs> what do you hate most about it? Um, man, that's, as I hate that it's only first order thinking. I can't stand first order thinking. Like I can't stand like you see something on the news and then that must be how it's going to be. Mm -hmm. like, I like to see something on the news. Like remember last year when it was like, oh, nobody can get houses, right? Right. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Like that made me just get harder into acquisitions because yeah. the second and third order effects was that there were a bunch of tired landlords trying to get out of the game. Right. And you just had to find them. Yeah. And so the, my problem with, I don't like simple thinking. I don't like too complex thinking. Mm -hmm. I don't like, but I don't like robotic thinking. Or reactive. Uh, rea yeah, I like react, but like the whole myth that you can go to school, get a good job, pay into a qualified plan for 40 years and then skip off in the distance is mm -hmm. about as dumb as idea as you can go to school, get a good job, buy 60 rentals and skip off <laughs> into the distance. <laughs> yeah, so um, why doesn't that work? Like why doesn't the traditional final financial planning work? Well, because it involves no leverage and it mm -hmm. involves tax deferment and not tax advantages. Got it. But I, I think the short answer is because there's no other people's money involved. Got it. Because because you can't leverage other people's resources to help you grow your grow your wealth. Yeah, your wealth production is you and a team of your financial planner. There's no coordination of action. There's no leveraging other people's capital. Yeah, not to mention a financial planner that actually has no vested interest in your success. Well, he's just a sales guy. Yeah, <laughs> it was like so. Like I would read the white papers when I was selling like a knee replacement, yeah. and like I would under, try to understand the biology, and I'd call my brother and be like, "Explain this to me." And then I'd try to be really smart to the doctors and be like, you know, the <laughs> circumference of this knee will do this for you and your client will have these benefits. And they'd be like, come on, Jimmy, like, <laughs> come on. You know, I, I just use you because you show up and like you're fun to be around. I'm like, okay, doc. But now a financial planner says, you know, now this stock is projected to do this over the next 20 years. Everybody believes it like gospel. Right. And so I never, I was like, wait, this guy's a sales guy? and not full of crap, like I'm a sales guy and I know when I'm full of crap and mm -hmm. these guys won't tell me when they are, when they're yeah. out of their league. So I was never, I was yeah, just like, this won't work. Uh, one of the really big eye-opening uh, books for me was uh, from Tony Robbins, uh, Money Master the Game. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how much, how much of a massive scam the, the, the mutual funds and index and all these other things. And I don't, I don't think it's a scam. I think once you read that book some more, you'll... you'll, you'll I, I've read the book, but when you choose this and mm. you only think in the first order, yeah. you're not getting scammed. You're just choosing not to look. Well, I, I think for me, the biggest thing was the fact that they weren't sharing with you that they were taking 1% or 2% off the top every year. Well, it's in the fine print. Uh, it's not in the fine print. That's, oh, really? That's what he's well, talking about in the book. Right, it is a yeah, scam. in the book, it's not in the fine print. So they're just taking 1% or 2% off the top. And then, uh, so you're literally handicapping your growth uh, year over year, right? Well, 
one or two percent over 40 years substantial well talking especially when it's tax deferred not tax free right so let's go back to what we were talking about earlier the yeah. uh going from 30 to 100 right what were some other things in, in, in big lessons for someone that's listening you know that if they're in turnkey or maybe they've done like a few or just even if they're doing 100 regular flips yeah cash management oh my god oh yeah here was another here was another uh abyss so uh, Brad, my partner in Cash Tactics, he's a CPA, and he, he had to like sit me down and like teach me taxes and how they worked. Mm -hmm. So like house like 60, I'm like, I'm crushing it, like I'm getting rich. And he's like, oh, you're putting any money away from taxes? I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business owner. Kiyosaki says we don't pay taxes. <laughs> and so I was, taking profits from flips and putting them into the next flips and then some of the profits into rentals, which was the government's money. And so all my tax liability was in projects and in rentals. And I didn't understand that. I thought they were business expenses. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the difference between a, a capitalized expense and a business expense. Yeah. I, that took me two days to understand and I was so angry. But- At who? Me. Got it. For not, un I'm like, I'm not stupid. Mm -hmm. Like, but the fact that I, did not figure that out. And so cash management, you know, profit first, having money set aside for taxes, and then ca you know, cash management still is uh, something I struggle with today, like learning it, and even though we're doing profit first, but I, uh, what would you tell people, watch your cash? <laughs> I think it's one of the most counterintuitive things. Like my brain hurts every time I have to go through this, right? Right. Because like I took 50,000 profit here, which is income, and I put it over here as a down payment over here, that's not an expense. It th doesn't matter if it came out of my bank account. Right. That is not an expense. No. Right. And that's the part that I struggled with for the first couple of years. That's, is, a, that's what I was trying to describe when I realized I was 100 grand in debt to the IRS. Yeah. Like, what do you mean this is not an expense? I needed that to buy a house. Like, no, you traded one form of asset for another form of asset. That was not an expense. Like, okay, well. So in your balance sheet, you still have your 50K of profit. You yeah. just don't have the cash. Yeah, so that 50K of profit went from the cash account into this particular house account. Yeah. Right, that's a different asset. So it's on the balance sheet, it's not on the profit and loss. But, I just, I remember Brad like drilling this into my head. Like, he's like, Jimmy, do 10 push-ups at the top of every push-up. Just say, profit is not cash, cash <laughs> is not profit. <laughs> But I argue with my accountant, I want to say like every year, right? I mean, so you, you only it only took you two days. It took me like three years of arguing with my accountant about this. It's not this. like, you're a smart guy. It's not, and I'm sure you did good in math growing up. I did up. really well in math. And this is so counterintuitive. It goes against every grain, you know, that, that brain cell that we have. But understanding your balance sheet and cash flow statement, like, it's hard, right? It's hard, but once you understand it, you have a massive advantage against your competition. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that would be if you're starting out, especially if you're flipping, like go to profit, do profit first with David, or David Richter, David Richter, at least read the book. So you understand the dilemma. It, I didn't understand the dilemma. That was the most painful part is that I didn't understand it was an issue. Mm -hmm. But I would say definitely manage, especially if you're doing well flipping, because you're going to start feeling <laughs> good. You start feeling good, you start spending. But the biggest thing is that the more you do, if you were just to do three flips every year or 10 flips every year, it's fine. It's when you go from 10 to 15, 15 to 30. And you got to hit payroll. You got to hit payroll. Yep. And now you got some cash flow issues. So you yep. can, uh, what was it? I think was it uh, in scaling up, they talked about like, you know, more businesses go out of, more companies go out of business 
due to indigestion versus starvation is not that you run out of opportunities. Right. Is that you're pursuing too many opportunities. Right. That's when you go out of business. Well, and then you're not reaping your rewards either. Right. Which is the other really sad reality. Yeah. Uh, so you did a, a presentation on Hero's Journey at the last Collective Genius. Mm. Uh, I took a lot of notes from that and took action from that. So can you summarize for people, like, what were the lessons you took from Hero's Journey and how does it apply to your business? Sure. Uh, so... I first saw, so while I was in this abyss, like all this is going on, but I'm, I'm still waking up every day and I'm reading five pages of something. And eventually I come across principles by Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio runs uh, Bridgewater Hedge Fund, or at least used to run it. So he is the owner of the biggest hedge fund on earth. And he's giving his own personal story in the book. And he talks about how in the 80s he went broke. And he- uh, Super smart guy. Yeah. like. Obviously not stupid, yeah. not an irresponsible business person, but he bet wrong on mm -hmm. a currency devaluation. And so he was f describing all the feelings and the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that I was talking about in, valleys of, in the valleys of death I went through. Like I was embarrassed about the tax thing. Like that one, that one really sucked more than the business divorce. Yeah. Um, and he read Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. And this is a book of, from every culture, from every country, it is 3,000 years of the hero story. And there's, a archetype, there's an archetype that human beings have gone, th gone through for like the last 5,000 years. If you go back to ancient Greece, if you go back to the Vikings, if you go back to ancient, like every fairy tale in every culture is the same. Mm -hmm. And so Ray Dalio came to the conclusion, was like, oh, I, this is just part of the game. Like, if yeah. you want to do anything well, you have to go through a hero's journey. Uh, so, shall you just go through the, the archetype real quick? Yeah. So, you start in the hero's journey, you hear a call to adventure. The, everybody knows uh, Lord of the Rings. So, when Bilbo leads, leaves the Shire, that was his call to adventure and crossing the threshold. Mm -hmm. Then it's the road of trials. That's when they're getting followed around by the black horsemen the whole time, having their fights. And eventually, they re reach rock bottom. And that's called the abyss. And at the abyss, you have a choice. You either quit or you learn what you have to learn to get out of the abyss and you keep going. Mm -hmm. And then after the abyss is the metamorphosis, you change. And then it's called the boon, which is like the reward you get. And then you come back from the boon and then that's what you share with the, the tribe, the community, the, the shire. Mm -hmm. And if you look at all of human, if you look at any movie you ever watch, it all goes through that archetype. Yeah. So, I, and you see, there was a book you recommended Oh yeah, the heroes, uh, the heroes two journeys. To be a screen, to be, a, I actually got this from Russell Brunson. But mm -hmm. to be a screenwriter in LA, you have to basically read this book and take this course. Yeah. So I, w I went through that book, and you said like, Steve, this is going to ruin all movies for you, mm -hmm. right? And I was like, No, I already know the hero's journey. Like, it shouldn't ruin any movies for me. And then I went through it. I was like, It didn't ruin any action movies for me because like every action hero movie has this hero's journey. Yeah. It ruined romantic movies for me, Your and I'm not a big. I'm not a big romantic uh, person, but they, t they, they use the how it works in the romance comedy. So I was like, oh, man, that's really... Now yeah. all these other movies are going to suck, too. Like there's always <laughs> you always suck even more. Yeah, there's always that point where they might break up yeah. or they keep going. Right. So uh, it's interesting. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting how that works, how that applies, and how we do go through our struggles. And we do go through this abyss. And we do go through, like, crap. You know, I, did I make the right decision? Right. And you got to figure out the tools to, to, to move forward. So the other thing you were talking about educating. Right. So there's uh, I think you put there's four ways to win in real estate. Yep. Can you go through those? 
Sure. So uh, you can. There's appreciation, which everybody loves. Everybody, especially 2022, everybody <laughs> loves appreciation. It's really, it's really easy right now. Yeah, and for landlords who people who grew up as landlords like me, there's cash flow, mm -hmm. and then there's leverage and tax advantages. Yeah. That's a, another reason I hate traditional financial planning. You win one way. Yeah. Appreciation. It's 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 so boring. Right. It's like playing checkers. Real estate, it's like playing chess. Mm -hmm. if, you can, if you can't find a way to win in one of those four ways, there's a, reason, there's a reason that real estate has created the most millionaires in this country, and it's because they win in four ways. Yeah. Because in every part of the market cycle, you can use one of those levers to win. So appreciation, I think that's pretty straightforward. Cash flow is pretty straightforward. Can you dive a little bit deeper into leverage? Yeah, other people's money. Okay. So... Obviously, you've had some success raising private money. You kind of mentioned earlier your medical background helped you initially propel or get that off the ground. Yep. Do you raise private money the same way now, or do you raise private money differently now? Uh, we do the basics still the same, uh, but now we do a, a fund. Mm -hmm. And so, but we, we, that's another thing the education company has helped out. People's their self-directed IRA money. We, mm -hmm. we are the best investment for them for that, that money. Got it. So... Yeah, we pretty much basically educate people about real estate and then raise money the same way. So you educate them on how to make money in real estate and then the self-directed IRA, tax advantages are not important. Well, it's, a, it's in a tax-free existence. And if another thing I hate almost as much as traditional financial planning is buying an asset in your already tax-free yeah, IRA. Right. Doesn't make any sense. So it doesn't make sense to buy real estate in your self-directed IRA. And so these are people that are lending you money yep. so it can grow tax-free. Correct. Got it. And the last one is the tax advantages, which I think people kind of get wrong. So can you elaborate on tax advantages? My whole business is essentially a tax revolt. When I, when I was doing really, really well at, in the corporate world, I was keeping half the money. And I, I was Uncle, like, Half of it was going to Uncle Sam? Yeah. I was like, no. Like, they, you know, you ask me, I love this country. I love it more than any you know, almost as much as my family. You asked me to jump out of a plane for him, like, I'm your guy. You already I'm did it. it. Yeah. <laughs> go get shot at, go get blown up, Jimmy. Go, you know, don't eat, don't sleep for it. I will do it. But yeah. they come in and say, I'm going to take your money. It's like, whoa, bro. <laughs> no. Yeah. Nah, not going to happen. Yeah. And so real estate, especially cash flowing real estate, it's, it's as close to tax-free money as you will ever get. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 1031 exchanges, that is a... It's magical how you can flip a house, 1031 it, and then convert it into a rental. Yeah. But there's no other way you're going to get close to under a 20% tax liability without real estate. So one of the things that um, they talked about, it was, it was um, Tom Wheelwright. He wrote that book. What was it? Tax-free? Uh, Tax-free wealth. Tax-free wealth. Yeah. Right. Uh, so he wrote in that book that... Um, the tax goes to treasure chest. Tax goes to treasure chest is designed that way. People forgotten that. Yep. Uh, but the part about if you've got all this real estate and you put it in your family trust mm -hmm. and you should pass, your family inherits it at full market value. Yep. And it's not taxable. Right. Um, can I remember what that's called at the moment? Um, I just think it's sharing ownership in LLC. You would just eventually we will give equity to our kids in the LLC. Like I'm not it. Maybe but that's a taxable event. I don't know. That's a taxable event. Okay. So you have to pass it to them upon death. Yeah. And if you pass it upon death, then they inherit the whole thing tax-free, and they'll never have to pay taxes on it. Yeah, and they will have to pay taxes on your 401k, by the way. They will have to pay taxes on your 401k, and they'll have to pay taxes if you gift them the assets while you're alive. So right. it has to be 
when you pass. But only real estate yeah. is only real estate is where you will not where there's always a loophole. Yeah. So is that something that you guys have planned into um, on the family tax planning or anything like that? The how you're going to pass the the, the the portfolio you guys have yeah. onto your kids. So what we have it set up. This is this is kind of another funny Jimmy Susie story, but we're getting Susie had to get involved in the business because we're we're preparing our will, and it's like all the debt, all the private lending. I, like she had to have a base understanding of what we did in case I passed away. Yeah. So she was like, oh my God, you need to get into the business like yesterday. So she shut down her photography business and uh, came along with us. But we're sitting with the lawyer and the lawyer's like, well, how much cash do you want to give your children when you pass? And like Susie looks at him like, cash? No. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, he's like, cash. And I'm like, no, they can have access to capital. All right. So basically when it's written up that all of our stuff goes into a family bank mm -hmm. that they can borrow against to buy a house, start a business or get educated. So do you guys have a, um, uh, you said a family bank. Can you elaborate what you mean by family bank? I go, it's a trust. Uh, and then we, we have a bunch of life insurance. Mm -hmm. All that cash would then go into the trust to pro if they're still children to provide for them. But that, in other ways, it goes into a trust. My brother's a trustee. And then it's a, a family bank that we hope will get them off the ground starting a business. So um, it sounds like that's, uh, you're using some whole life insurance. Yeah. Okay, so I am still kind of like, it makes sense to me, but I haven't gone all in on it yet. Okay. So where, what do you store, you, where do you store your, for a business owner, it's different than an employee for sure. Yeah. So how are you guys using the whole life insurance policy? I use it as my Alamo, like my store of liquidity, mm -hmm. store of cash. Yeah. So anytime you got capital. If I flip a house, a thousand bucks goes into, into life insurance. Okay. And that's just ongoing forever and then whenever you need access to that capital you just borrow against it correct got it and you have no concerns about it like i'm i need to i actually need to do my own, more of my own research on this right like it makes it it makes complete sense when we got chris miles as a friend yeah chris noggle's friend like they do this but i have never i have not but gone if, all in on it yet if you're looking at it for a rate of return oh it's not for the rate of return no you will like no i i it's for as a business owner having a, a store of liquidity yeah so a store of liquidity that's can't be touched yeah and protecting and pr to protect your family if you were passed. That's a, while you're living, it's a huge advantage that people, I don't think, value. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. And that, then I've always believed, well, I got this from Nassim Taleb from Anti-Fragile, but rate of return is irrelevant if you go bust. So every dollar I put into those vaults is a dollar farther away I am from ever going, not having liquidity to drive on to the business. Yeah, uh, that, definitely need to read that book. Uh, so we got a few questions here before we get into those questions uh, guys We do have our sales training event next uh, month. If you guys are interested go to disruptors.com slash sales disrupts sales disruptors uh, We do have a day and a half event in our office to go over sales. So uh, Let's see the questions we got here. So on Instagram Ryan <laughs> This is a how did you get so many mortgages <laughs> or for so many properties at, at the same time? Um, we we bought a house on a short sale uh -huh. that we knew was worth a million dollars, and we got it for four hundred. It was worth a million, but we got it for four hundred. All right. So this is like, you know, you could do this in two thousand ten and eleven. Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot of scary money at that time. Correct. So we got that house, and we knew, and then I didn't want to like fix it up right away, and so we knew if we 
and I didn't want to move either because mm -hmm. I was in a little bit of scarcity and Susie's like, no, we're moving. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, all right, well, you're doing all the work you're doing. I'm just going to go to work and you handle all this. So she's like, okay. So all she did was refurbish the hardwoods, paint it, and, we, and then we lived in it for six months and it um, refied out for 750. Mm -hmm. So we took that 250K, we bought three houses, fixed them up, then went to a commercial bank, refied all the cash out. That's how we got up to 60, was cycling the cash and the burn method. So a commercial bank, um, not a community bank. Or, you know, I, when I say commercial bank, I mean somebody locally in St. Louis. Got it. Guys okay. I play basketball with. Yeah, you know, you, you did a video about that. Yeah. So explain to me how basketball and private money go together. Well, basketball and bank money go together. Yeah, and bank money go together. So one of my mentors, it was genius. He's like, Jimmy, here's what you got to do. If you want to get money to build your real estate portfolio, just go find the youngest, most fun banker you know, because they're just a sales guy and they need somebody to hang out with. And so there was a bunch of young, fun bankers at the Missouri Athletic Club playing mm -hmm. basketball in a league. And I just, they needed business. And by them giving me money, they could go to their boss and be like, look boss, I'm working here. <laughs> so it was an excuse for them. And you get to connect with them. And I still had a W-2. So mm -hmm. um, I, all I had to have was a pulse. I remember I had to have a deal, a pulse, and a W-2. Yeah. And they're like, they didn't, it was so, it was, they were managed so horribly, no systems, no processes. Then they just started giving, lending me money. Yeah. So re, quickly recycling burn money with local banks and go yeah. find the most fun young banker around. There you go. Uh, and then on YouTube, TC, uh, so as long as we put away 30% of every dollar crew, we should be all right, correct? I think he's probably referencing taxes. So if, every, if they take 30%, which I think is kind of high. What do you, I dollar, do 25. You do 25? Yeah. So if you make a uh, hundred bucks on a, on a flip, yep. 25 goes in your tax account. Uh, yeah. That when we close out the project, just mm -hmm. like if you make sure all your vendors are paid, you got to make sure Uncle Sam's paid too. Okay. So let's uh, go through that real quick. So hundred dollars on this flip. Yep. And can we, and then we've spiced it up a little with Krigler's recommendation. Mm -hmm. Cause I, we were flipping so much. I wasn't really buying many rentals for ourselves. but so we flip a house. You do, you know, you go through your checklist, vendors paid, check, lender paid, check, Alta statement. You know, since we have a fund, we got to make sure the funds paid back. You got to make sure your private lenders pay back. Then you're left with your profit. Mm -hmm. Take 25% of that, throw it in the tax account. Now Krigler, is like Jimmy because of advanced depreciation, every hundred grand in profit, now you have to buy five hundred thousand dollars in assets if you wanted to be net net cash free. Yeah. I'm not gonna let the tax tail wag me that hard. Mm -hmm. But now when I see uh, acquisitions, occupied acquisitions, especially section eight occupied acquisitions from the wholesaling, I love picking those off. Yeah. To mitigate that tax liability. And then so I will get a little brave and I'll use some of that tax money to take down that house. If, if the calculation, you know, I'm watching it closely. So 25% Uncle Sam? Yeah. What about the other 75%? How does that all divvy? You said- That goes in, if so, to buy profit first doctrine, that goes mm -hmm. into the income account. Got it. And okay. then once a month you pull out your budget mm -hmm. and then what's ever left is your profit account, then that goes into your profit account. Got it. Um, highly, I don't know if you recommend all your guys profit first, but that. Oh, works. I highly recommend yeah. profit first. Uh, everyone does a little different. That's the only reason I was asking right. how you do it. Uh, all right, on Instagram, Joe wants to know uh, what were all the books 
you mentioned, I think we went through a bunch of them. Yeah, I know. Uh, Sorry. There was, was Anti Fragile. Yeah. Principles. But if you're going to read Anti Fragile, you might as well do Skin in the Game. And then, mm-hmm. man, what was his first one? Um, Fooled by Randomness. Fooled by Randomness. So if you are going to take the Nassim Taleb detour, mm-hmm. it will be a it'll be a well worth six month journey. Yeah. And I, I would just do five pages a day, and I try to reread them probably every year to two. But the, the way the dude thinks is amazing. Got it. Uh, we talked about the Heroes Who Journey. Yep. Talk about uh, Principal Ray Dalio. Mm-hmm. His latest one, uh, New World Order, that just mm-hmm. came out. That's that's blowing my mind right now. Really? Yeah. All right, that's one more book I got to read. Yeah. Um, we talked about uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. I've heard that's not really an easy read, so it's not necessarily. So dense. <laughs> even the audio, I can get through most audio books, but even that one yeah. is rough. So not necessarily that one. Uh, Scaling Up 2.0, I think is another one. Mm. I can't think of all the other ones. Um, and then we're talking about the gap in the gain. So uh, Dan one, Sullivan. Yeah. Dan Sullivan. And gap Benjamin in the Hardy. Gain. And Benjamin Hardy. Yep. And then uh, Who Not How. Just We didn't mention that one, but I'm a very big Dan Sullivan fan. I haven't read that book because I went through strategic coach. But uh, Well, Benjamin Hardy puts such a good spin on everything from Sullivan. Really? Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. That, those are great. I don't think you need to read those ones. Those mm-hmm. are phenomenal audio books. Yeah. Okay, so uh, how do you feel about flipping with raising rates on their way? So uh, with we got the chance to listen to Alistair at the last meeting. Yeah. And he's convinced that rates are going up. Yep. Um, how do you feel about flipping knowing that rates are going up? Turnkey flipping, don't care. Retail flipping, I'd be more... Co- I've never been like a huge retail flipper. Mm-hmm. We The market was so hot, we started doing it. But I, I've made sure to never get overextended on retail flips. Like we'll always have 500 to a million dollars out on retail. But turnkey flip, I think turnkey will always be around. You know, we, I skipped this. I should have dove deeper into this. For those people that are not familiar with what turnkey flipping is, can you explain what that is? Sure, so turnkey flipping is for high net worth individuals or you know employees who are curious about getting into real estate and they don't want to take that, like we talked about earlier, they're either not ready to or don't want to take that full-time leap into being a real estate professional. Like maybe they, maybe they love their job or they just won't enjoy wholesaling or they won't enjoy flipping. Mm-hmm. So it's a way to get all the advantage of investing, not being an active participant, but investing in real estate. And so interest rates go, I don't necessarily sell houses. I sell government-backed conventional loans to overtax W-2 employees. Love that phrasing. Right. So interest rates going up won't, won't affect the turnkey business at all. Because I, when interest rates were so low, um, I was just like, yeah, you gotta understand, I'm just a middleman. When interest rates are really low, my acquisitions price goes up, and then your, uh, your acquisition price goes up. Because mm-hmm. I keep my margin or I don't do the deal. Right. With interest rates going up, I'll beat down the seller and then they'll probably get the house at a lower price, maybe, mm-hmm. depending on what rents do. But if I, what I would say to turnkey investors, and you know, Mark Delator, a big mentor of mine, he says that the best time to buy investment real estate is all the time. Yeah. At different parts of the cycle, because to be able to, de- you'll never be able to deploy all your capital at the optimal point in the cycle. Right. And if you're winning in four ways, it doesn't matter when you buy. So interest rates going up won't affect the turnkey business. It might help the turnkey business because it, the retail won't be as alluring. Um, one of the things that we have to check, I think on our 1040s, 
is whether we're an active participant. Yep. So oh, that's also for all the wholesalers, like this is why you got to be picking up rentals so you can list yourself as a real estate professional mm -hmm. and get your take passive losses on your active income. Yeah. And so, that goes back to Tom Wheelwright. Like the whole tax code was designed for real estate investors. Right. So if you're, um, if you're a W2 guy and you pick up turnkeys, can you take the passive losses to write off against your active income or they just kind of miss on that on the part? It, well, in general, they'll miss out, but if you get creative with it, if you have a non-working spouse and gets a real estate license, then you can start doing that. There you go. So there's a workaround. Where there's a will, there's a way. There's always a workaround. Got it. And you know, I love that you talked about how this is great for the person that's got a debut that loves their job. Because one thing is really easy for us to do. You know, we're passionate about real estate. We're in real estate. Right. And you know, you kind of see those bigger pockets too. Like, man, I need to quit my job to get into this. Like, I got to join the business owner and entrepreneurs else club, yeah. Steve. Yeah, you don't. Like, there's you could totally invest in real estate if you love what you do. We just happen to love. We're crazy. We love this side. Yeah. But. 95% of people don't love this side. Like my first uh, boss at Stryker, mm -hmm. he was born to do what he's doing. He's a great corporate leader. Yeah. I just think he should have real estate to beat out his 401k. Right. But, and I think, I think on Instagram, on Facebook, this whole like, it's so cool to be a business owner, it's mm -hmm. so cool to be an entrepreneur, like, sure, but you might want to mention all the abysses you have to go through. Like, yeah. it's not that cool. And there was, there was a long time, I was making more as a corporate employee than I, than I was a business owner. In all my years, you know, like, you know, talking about Intel, right, when I left, like, in all my years, there was only a handful of years where I was on my realtor side profited more than my Intel side, right? Right. Um, Numbers-wise, it was far sexier. Like, revenue was great. Yeah. But take-home, it's like, for, like, the first five, seven years, like, I would have been better off just staying at Intel. What the heck was I thinking? With what, 20% uh, of the aggravation? <laughs> a lot more aggravation. Right. Yeah, it was a it was a really cushy I, job. I do like, and if you're, and then all of us are going to end up as investors. Mm -hmm. Whenever we start living off our assets to produce income, the great majority of all of us are going to become, and so that's what I tell my turnkey buyers is, I'm going to end up in the I quadrant. You're going to end up in the I quadrant. How you get to the I quadrant, who really cares? Yeah. Because they'll come and be like, I'm not I'm not a business owner. I'm not an entrepreneur. Like. Who cares? Right. And I think business owners, entrepreneurs have to do a little better job being like, hey, it's not that cool. Yeah. And if you're just in here to be in the Elks Club, like that's, you know, now I'm thinking about it. When I first started, I just wanted to be in the Elks Club. <laughs> I just wanted to be in the cool guy group. Yeah. I didn't want to do the work. Well, you know, like we, the allure, right, is that you get to just chill on the beach, right, drink Mai Tais and whatever, and like totally just do whatever you want whenever you want. Right. That's the allure. Yeah. But... I'd be lying to you if I wasn't checking emails at night whenever I'm out of the state. Yeah. Right? Like, we don't ever 100% disconnect. At least I don't. And I think most people don't. And it's not that they don't want to necessarily, or it's not that they desire strongly to, to disconnect. I think it's just the way we're wired, right? We don't really have, like, a three-week paid vacation well, where you can just... I wouldn't want it. Huh? I wouldn't want it. You wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want it. Right. But I'm saying, like, most people do. Yeah. Right. Most people love to just be able to just disconnect and like not worry about anything, not having any responsibilities. So we I, we've had people in cash flow tactics kind of struggle with that. And the way the way I figured it is it are you looking for freedom from constraint? Or are you looking for freedom for, to pursue excellence? Mm -hmm. I would argue when you're checking email, when 
you're not wanting to take three weeks vacation, it's because you're pursuing excellence. Yeah. Like you're driven by that. Right. And it's not about being, sipping si Mai Tais because you have rentals is freedom from constraint. Yeah. And I, I believe the game is played in a much more fun manner when freedom pursuing excellence. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you put it in that way because I've never really thought about that. It's like, I thought I was just broken. No, so. freedom is just this like trashed word that people misuse all the time. Yeah. Uh, let's see, uh, Joshua Size here. What return are you paying members of your fund and how are you leveraging that capital? Uh, we pay 7% and then that's what we use. We use like a line of credit. That's our acquisitions capital. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I would, if you're, do you think the answer of what we do to start out? Uh, well, that's just what you're paying and how you're leveraging that capital. So yeah, I guess you can also add how you would start out. Yeah, so we started out one investor, one house and the security before we had a proven track record was that one note, one deed of trust. Because if, if you're new and you start a fund and it goes bust, the investor is gonna be in bankruptcy court being like, what part is mine? Mm -hmm. Now, when you're new and don't have a track record, you do one investor, one property, so they get the one needed note and deed of trust, and you can be like, hey, if I go bust, you get the property, and it's very clear. So I would say until you get up to like 100, 100 and change, where it flips a year, just do one, we raised $5 million, one property, one investor yeah. back in the day. And then you have a fund now? Yeah. Um, and, and then we did that just because it was just a paperwork mess. <laughs> the one property, one investor, once you get to a certain scale, is yeah. a mess. Uh, so then you have, uh, they fund the purchase and the rehab? Yep. And then it's a, they fund 100% of operations and it's the same interest rate all across the board. Yeah, because it's yeah. a line of credit we control. Okay, so the way you the way you address it is, you only pay interest when you pull out capital. Right. No. No, that's the downside of the fund. I have to keep that money working. Yeah. Now there's a you can do a more sophisticated way. You can keep it at the title company, but we've we've had more instances where I'm like, oh my god, we need more cash. Then I'm not that worried about keeping it working all the time. Yeah. You know, it's uh, what's that um, Parkinson's law, right? Like if you have it, you'll use it. Exactly. There's no way that <laughs> it's not being spent. Right. Yeah. Um, so another thing that I thought was really cool, uh, so I, I talked to the team about this, we're modifying, you know, like I said, I took notes from your, your presentation. Um, the, the taking action, because if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably an information junkie, like we are, and we get overloaded. Yep. How do you filter it so that you're not trying to do too much? Well, I know, things? I listened to this Tim Bratz on your show last year. I'm like, <laughs> multi families, let's yeah. go. Yeah, let's do it. What are we waiting for? And Well, then I'm like, <laughs> I have my core, the, you gotta have, you know, the EOS process I think helps with that. Mm -hmm. I, there's multifamily, any part of my core focus? No, not right now. Is there any of my rocks around, around being Tim Rots and multifamily? No, like I've already committed to rocks for the quarter. Now at the quarter, if we wanna say, hey, does Greenland Capital wanna shift into multifamily? You can have that conversation four times a year. Yeah. So that's what I use EOS and rocks that I've already committed to and targets I've already set to not follow the uh, the muse, or the harpies. Yeah. Like you, you know that story, right? Uh, we're talking about Odysseus? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, because that, especially a hard-charging entrepreneur type, the harpies will always be trying to distract you for your attention. I just use a much simpler term. It's just uh, uh, shiny object syndrome. Right. Uh, so, Mark Delatore is here, is listening, so I appreciate it, Mark. Hi, mate. Uh, <laughs> set the basis. That's, that was the word I was looking for earlier. He's so smart. He is a really smart guy. So, um, but yeah, I think 
I think there is that. And the other thing too is uh, Leon Barnes says on a regular basis that you are the king of implementation or taking action. So we already talked about like how you filter it. You, you, you're not allowed to do it unless it's part of the quarterly rocks. Right. When you do decide you want to do something, how are you able to do it so fast? Besides, you know, you're being a 10 on the quick start. Like what else are you doing to make sure you're executing uh, well or executing consistently? I, so it's one thing, like when I commit to something, this is, you know, Larry will talk about this too. Like I made a commitment to myself. So part of my motor is driven by fulfilling on commitments I made to myself and my team and Susie. So it's a, it's an integrity issue for me. Like if I say I'm going to do it and that also helps me not do, give loose commitments. Got so it. part of it is having an, an integrity for yourself. Mm -hmm. And then part of me is recognizing that every 90 days will be a hero's journey. Week nine, 10, 11 will suck, but we will metamorphosize and we will grow. So I have yeah. enough confidence in setting targets and persevering that it's, it's just part of who my team is now. Yeah. So they've all got to experience the abyss. Yeah, we were in it uh, the week before we left CG. Like I, I said to stop the L10 and I'm like, all right, gang, like, <laughs> look, I promise you this would happen. We're in the abyss. Because you could tell everybody's morale was down. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, look, we've been here before. We always come out just like, I'm just like muscle through this week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, do control, especially when you're in the abyss, control the small thing you can control. I'm like, focus in on your to-dos, hammer that out. And I, I, I think the team liked it because maybe they didn't recognize they were in the abyss. Yeah. And then also, I'm not going to fault them for being the, in the abyss. And it's like, I hope my job is to help them get out of it. But just, I, I would say like the, sorry, that was a long answer to. No, I think it's, it's have, important. Yeah, have integrity for yourself and then run to the abyss every 90 days. Just recognize weeks 9, 10, and 11 of every quarter should suck. <laughs> and I think we, we've said this a few times on, the, on, on this podcast, but I think it just bears repeating. Like, we get to enjoy a lot of cool things, right? We get to travel, we get to enjoy it, like the nicer things in life. But a lot of our business sucks. And like, we only highlight the stuff on social media. Like here's some re something really cool we did. Right. We don't really go talk about like, man, like I had this really difficult conversation with this person or like, I totally expect that this was going to happen and it didn't. And it let me down. I let this other person down or like, there's just so many examples of like, this business sucks. Right. But we're always talking about like the really cool stuff on social media. And I think I, like, I'm not going to be a whiner on social media, mm -hmm. but you know, on my team, when you, when you mess up, you got to have two rules. You got to have come with a lesson learned and have a great story. <laughs> I, think, I think you can make some pretty funny posts talking about the things you messed up. Yeah. 10 days after it's done when you're not really in it. When it's not as raw. <laughs> yeah. But I have found the greatest response I've gotten from is like showing, uh, talking about a great story and showing your mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th and I think it goes back to um, the connection, right? So like, right. that's something that uh, our whole team is going through with SEAL Team Leaders, is that the, the connection, the authenticity, the vulnerability, the trust. Yep. Uh, so I have, I'm, we've only gone through two modules. Like, it seems like we've been working with them forever. We've only gone through two modules. We've had multiple lengthy conversations. Right. Uh, but it's, we hired it for the team. I selfishly think I'm benefiting it more than anybody else. Um, what would you say is some of the things that you've 
surprise you or that you learn in working with Larry and Annie? Uh, that every problem has such a simple solution. Generally, it's a template created by Larry. <laughs> <laughs> like, have you guys done feedback yet? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, so for the audience, feedback is like when you have a team member that you have to tell them some not so negative, some not so glorifying news or yeah. feedback. Because it's great being, I love being the coach and cheerleader mm -hmm. of the team. Like, you're doing awesome, right? Yep. But when a team member is like clearly making an error, they just need to be coached. I used to like, I would talk to Susie about it. And then I know I have to have a conversation if Susie grits her teeth in a certain way when she's like, ugh. Yeah. Like, but now Larry gives you a template to how to do, feed, I'm sorry, I can't bring it back from memory, mm -hmm. but whenever, and the best, whenever we have to have a coaching or correction call, there's a template right there. It takes all the emotion out of it, and I think the team member feels relieved. And then, you wanna hear the super ninja trick? My coordination of action officer, Connor, has, has used it on me three times this quarter. Yeah. He's like, Jimmy, are you ready for some feedback? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> but then he does it SEAL team leader style. I'm like, yeah. you're right, dude. And thank you for helping me solve that problem. Uh, so what is his, his, his title or his role? Coordination of action officer. Coordination of action. Yes. And he's a, a, a figure within your organization. Yeah. He ties everything together. Got it. And that was, uh, to talk up Larry and Annie some more, uh, you know, you got the EOS, the classic visionary integrator model, mm -hmm. Larry's stance is that's incomplete. To have the integrator be leading, managing, and following the visionary, mm -hmm. it's too much for that person. There has to be somebody in there making sure all the departments are talking amongst each other. For, like for us, for example, acquisitions has to be talking to rehab, which then has to be talking to leasing. And if those communication pathways are broken, and I used to Which be, they often are. Yeah, which they always are, but so there needs to be a human making sure the information is passing back and forth. And so we had a choice to go integrator, visionary, or do visionary. So I do visionary and integrator for my business, and then Connor's the coordination action officer. Is someone else that's in that? Where is he in the accountability chart? Right next to me. Right, right next, next to, to the integrator. Right next to the integrator. On the leadership team. Okay, so his job is to communicate with everybody else. And to make everything uh, is meshing. I think that's powerful, so I can't wait to get to that part. We've done it for two quarters. I just had Connor's quarterly conversation yesterday. I'm like, dude, this is, like this kid was made for this position. He, lo he loves it. Well, one thing I've learned about myself, and I think everyone here that works here, and my wife, and probably a lot of other people tell you too, my biggest challenge is communication, which is ironic, because I teach it, right? right. <laughs> but I'm lousy at it. So yeah, I think this uh, one person who's in charge of communicating ideas I think it's a really interesting concept. And I, I think it's a, uh, EOS is great, mm -hmm. but things can always get better. Of course. I think SEAL team leaders have really pointed out a gap in the market there. Yeah. Because I, everybody expects the COO and the integrator to, or the integrator to just do so much. So they have to lead and manage employees, but then to also manage the information, I, I know in my business it's too much. Yeah. Well, especially because we're, it's not like we're ever simplifying things. We're just getting bigger and bigger right. and more complicated, adding more people. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I would say it, our greatest challenge consistently is this message was not communicated to that person. And consistently. Then, that is like the biggest challenge. And then this definition of success is coordination of action. Yeah. You gotta, it's going to be hard to be successful. Absolutely. I would, I would reach out to Nick on their team and just ask about 
because they'll come in and they'll give you a, an interim CAO or they'll train somebody on your team to be the CAO. Got it. Okay, so we'll definitely check that out. So uh, we haven't really talked about this. What keeps you going? What is your why? I'm just having uh, playing the game. Yeah. Pursuing excellence, having fun. Is there something more to it or is it just pursuing excellence? Like God gave me a lot of gifts, right? Mm -hmm. He got me through the war. It's like I have a duty to develop those gifts to the greatest of my ability. Yeah. So that is the, and then the fact that it's so much fun and then the fact that now I'm not afraid of abysses and then it's just a game to me. You're not even not afraid of it. I think you're looking forward to the next one. Yes. <laughs> and like, it's, it's just, so a little part of it is like I'm 42. And What's I, that? I'm 42. Okay. And I sat the bench in college. Mm-hmm. I'm still a little pissed off about that. Yeah. So the fact that I get playing time in this game, I'm just so grateful. Was that at West Point? Yeah. Okay, so I think they probably had a pretty good program. No, we weren't any good any, then either. They're awesome now. We were oh, bad. You were bad then? Yeah. I mean, at least you were on the bench. I got cut like freshman year of high school. Like I never made it past first cuts. Yeah, I'm a little bit in the gap about it, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, But I think that's awesome, man. I think that's why we have so much fun. Uh, what keeps you going? Um, I think I have an obligation to, to maximize my potential. I, it's, and I used to not know right why but then going through a skill team leaders like uncovering some you know childhood you know the way we were raised and everything else right you know we talk about the the tiger mom and why uh, uh like the the three things that happen with like a lot of asian kids is that you know they're overachievers uh, hyper competitive and low self-esteem right it's like it's what happens right like you got a 98 why the low self-esteem uh, because you were never good enough for your parents is that it oh yeah like if you got 98 on a test like well why didn't you study harder like, <laughs> this is, these are real conversations. I have these conversations with my kids. Like, you got nine out of 10 of that test. What were you doing? Right? And so I think that uh, there's some part where you have to maximize your potential. So, but that is for me. That, that, that is my why. So I, if you asked me like a few weeks ago, I was like, I don't know. I just want to win. Right. Now I was like, apparently something you, back it's there. It's like a, a sense of duty, right? Sense of duty, sense of obligation. They called it, um, I was reading this uh, last week. I think it was... Um, it's like the, the immigrant's bargain. Uh-huh. Like your parents come to this uh, country to sacrifice. You have an obligation to be successful, right? Like they traveled across the planet to come to the greatest country in the world. Right. You have an obligation to succeed. So something I was reading about uh, last week. So I think that's what it is. Not Do you think that's a certain. good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I don't think it's either. I think it's just who we are. It just is, right? Yeah. So we embrace it and just move on. I also think that's part of being grateful too. Yeah. Don't you? Like there's so much opportunity. Like if you can contribute just a little bit back. Oh yeah. I'm my biggest struggle at this exact moment. It's like, which opportunities do we say yes to? Which opportunities do we say no to? It's an amazing problem to have. Right. But man, it's, it's a struggle. It's like, cause you got like these other successful friends. Hey, let's partner up on this. These other successful friends say, let's partner up on that. It's like, I want to say yes to all of them, but I know, kind of like you said earlier, an integrity issue. Right. If I say yes to all these things, I'm going to upset somebody. I'm going to say it's going to screw things up. Can't do them all well. And then you're worried about your reputation. Right. Because if you fail one person, like, oh, you know, it's hard to work with Steve. (laughs) It's hard to work with Steve. Can't get a hold of him. All sorts of other challenges. Yeah. So that's my biggest struggle. The chaos of abundance. The chaos of abundance. It's wonderful. So what are you, are you getting a process together on how to figure it out? It's a good idea. I talk it through with our leadership team. So one thing that uh, Gary Harper had us do when he, when he came out 
was it got me as a visionary uh, of, of the holdings company, Jaden, who are, is our integrator, who now that you mentioned chief coordination officer. Jaden's always like, oh my God, if Steve would just give me a CAO, I'd be so much better. He's probably thinking that same thing. He's probably listening to this right now, kind of freaking out. <laughs> um, and then there's four other companies that he's accountable for that are you know, reporting up to him. Yep. And so uh, I, am, I am removed, so I don't know. The, we'll see where it goes. As, but we have our leadership meetings on Tuesdays where I'm like, hey, I got this crazy idea. What do you guys think? And it's like, we're going to move it off to a quarterly meeting. We want to talk about it now. So that's how we filter right now. But there probably could be a better process. But and then you guys open up the space in the quarterly to, yes. to have that conversation, yeah. right? And then that's kind of your time to do the reconnaissance. Yeah. To get. To figure out whether it's something we want to pursue. And have you found that like doing EOS, doing Gary Harper, that to implement the new ideas, it really isn't not that much brain damage because you have the scaffolding mm -hmm. to, to do that. Yeah, it's um, because we're mentally prepared for it. We're mentally ready to have that conversation versus like, hey, Jimmy, I'm in it. I want to write something about you. Yeah. <laughs> we're not mentally prepared to have that conversation. I'm like, sure, let's start. Yeah. We're not thinking about the pros, the cons. We're just like, oh, yeah, sounds like a good idea. Let's go do it. Awesome. Yeah. Whatever you decide, uh, best of luck. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I, hope you, I, you'll I know you'll crush it. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, so going back to what is your biggest struggle right now? Right now? What, what have I been pissed off about lately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like right now I've been getting, like I've been having feedback sessions with Connor, right? <laughs> yeah. And Christy. Uh -huh. Christy's my EA, and they're all like trying to, wedge me out of the business yeah and so i would say figuring out as my team is rising and they they are crushing this quarter mm -hmm. as like you know <laughs> what do i do now <laughs> well you should probably talk to phil green about that yeah because he's all about like coming up with new ideas well and i want to leverage the current market and really maximize wholesaling mm -hmm. so being top-notch wholesalers, and, and thank you for your coaching, and my team loves your coaching. Oh, thank you. But while the market remains hot, being top-notch wholesalers. Yeah. Um, so what I did, which you've already done, the reason why we hire SEAL team leaders is because I was getting kicked out of all my companies. Uh -huh. I was like, before I completely release the reins, I just want one like really good training for all you guys. And then ironically, I think I'm getting the most out of it. That's awesome. Than everybody else. I mean. I can't, I can't wait till they go to the, they, I can't wait till SEAL team leaders goes to the, uh, I know they're going to do a, a more of a mass market approach. Mm -hmm. I can't, and Larry's got a book coming out. Yeah. I can't wait. Just uh, the concept of, you know, fulfillment is how much action you can coordinate together mm -hmm. and how he explained it from his time overseas. Like when I saw that six months ago, that blew me away. Yeah. And when, what did he say? What I can't, what did he say at the December meeting? It was his talk at December meeting. Was oh, huge. I, I didn't, I didn't get to hear that talk. Oh, you might want to go back to the Dropbox and watch that. Yeah, that changed our whole how we did our annual planning. Okay, then. Then like, we'll go back. Don't and just keep jumping. Here, here it was. You can either, you know, you can keep jumping to next achievement, next achievement, next achievement, and you might be fulfilled mm -hmm. if you focus on achievement, or you can focus on fulfillment and still achieve things, and you'll probably get both. Yeah, that was the thing that hit me uh, like a bag of bricks. Uh, in our coaching. So that's one of the questions here. How do you measure success? I think you just answered it. Well, SEAL Team Leaders has helped me restructure it. Like there's definitely the scoreboards. They're definitely the P&L. 
but it's how much action are we coordinating and how successful are my team members yeah. and how much are they growing? Yeah. What is your superpower? Starting things, executing. <laughs> uh, so um, if someone wanted to learn more about their Kobe, how would they do that? Uh, Kobe.com. Kobe.com. I think yeah. it's less than a hundred bucks. I would say take it with your spouse too. That yeah. helped me and Susie understand oh, really? each other a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was 55 bucks when I looked at it like a couple weeks ago. It's, it's crazy how accurate it is. Um, and for me, I, it actually gave me some relief. It's like, oh, I'm really bad at like finishing things and I'm really terrible with my hands. So <laughs> don't have to worry about those things anymore. Well, I, I had like some guilt for my time in the military because if they'd be like, you know, sit here and shine your shoes, I'd be like, no, <laughs> no way. But they're like, jump out of a plane. I'm like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, I was just born that way. Right. But I was just like, why couldn't I do these simple, easy things? Yeah. I could, so you and I, right, could go start something tomorrow. Sure. Or maybe right after this podcast. We can start a brand new venture, right? Yeah. But in six months or 12 months, like, are you so excited about it? I was like, ah, I mean, someone's taking care of it. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so we can start things. So, uh, and this is kind of like the uh, concept from Dan Sullivan was there's project managers and process managers, right? I can do anything once an amazingly high level. You asked me to do that thing 10 times, man, that effort wanes every time I do it. Absolutely. So you got that same thing. So I, and then, uh, you know, cause I've been thinking about this. I think I'll always be, I want to, in my business, I want to be like the zero to one guy. Mm-hmm. I want to be finding the new thing, starting the new thing, putting the, bringing the team to build the scaffolding, build the business around it, then off again. Right. So I think, uh, yeah, definitely serial entrepreneur, shiny object syndrome, you and I, have that in spades uh and it's fun it's a lot of fun uh what is the greatest lesson that you have learned that's tough it seems like there were a handful of all time of all time mm-hmm. i would say learn to run to the abyss learn to in that is this is a jordan peter it's jordan peterson quote but that which that which you want most will be found where you least want to look So I know if I don't want to look at something, I'm like, oh, that's the next 90 day target. Uh, What was the, there was a, 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 um, it was a, a a short story or like a very short article. It was talking about, you know, the secrets to success. And I mean, we all say, all right, there's no secret to success. Uh, I think what the guy basically said was like, if you're willing to do what no one else is willing to do, that's the secret, right? If you're willing to do every single day, what nobody else wants to do, you will find success. If it's targeted in the correct direction. Targeted in the right direction, but all, you know, obviously it's something that's providing value to society, but. But I mean, I've seen people just, you know, grind with their head down with no strategic direction and, you know, they, they want to be the martyr. Mm-hmm. That, that's their definition of success. Uh, <laughs> it's not a great definition, but that's, right. their, that's their definition of success. They're so happy to I be a martyr. I agree with you, like with, as long as they're strategic, yeah. as long as they look up. Right, yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, is there a favorite, best, or most interesting failure in your career? Um, each new <laughs> major mess up, Steve, is always my new favorite failure. <laughs> is there one very recent that would be an interesting, you talk about it has to be a great story, right? Yeah. Is there a great recent great story? We done anything really stupid lately? <laughs> Every day. Every day. Um, <laughs> Not, not recently. Yeah. I think I, we, I think I missed a little, I should have enacted more of a focus on wholesaling before I did. Mm-hmm. 
because turnkey was simple and it was easy and we were just getting good at it. So about this time last year, I wish I would have pivoted faster yeah. or gotten better at wholesaling faster, mm-hmm. put more of a emphasis on it. Yeah, got it. Um, and I remember like I watched, when I was newer to CG, I remember watching your presentation on how to work with Roofstock. Uh, how, was it how to wholesale the Roofstock? I oh, know you were double closing with them, right? We were, so since I have the property management, mm-hmm. I have a distinct advantage from, on wholesalers, from tired landlords. How's that? Because I'll buy everything occupied. I Got love it. it. But of course I say, hey, you know, only investors, investors only pay this. <laughs> Even though I know I got hedge funds and roof stock on the back end, right. willing to pay double that. Yeah. But if I have to own it for two weeks to a month and collect the rent, mm-hmm. I, I, I love that. Yeah. I don't know if, it, I, we call it delayed wholesaling. Yeah. Uh, is there, any one book you've gifted uh, more than any other? Chase the Lion by Mark Batterson. What's that book about? Um, if, you're, if your dream doesn't scare you, you're not dreaming big enough. Got it. That's the, the headline, on the, uh, that's the headline on, on the book. Got it. Um, I guess then, I mean, this is probably a, a stupid question, but like, in your opinion, do you feel then, if that's your favorite book, that as a society, we're not dreaming big enough? Yeah, we... Rather sit here and fight on Instagram and Twitter, and kick people off Twitter. Yeah, I, I think we have other fish to fry for sure. We do have some bigger fish to fry. That's true. All right, so I want you to think about a message you want to leave the listeners with while I make a couple of quick announcements. Okay, uh, guys, if you guys got value today, please like, subscribe, share, comment. I'm harping this every week. I see 37 people watching, 17 likes. Like, guys, it helps the algorithm, and if it helps the algorithm, it helps us reach more people. Um, we do have our sales masterclass coming up uh, next month. If you guys are interested, go to disruptors.com slash sales disruptors. And we do have Shane Ninen coming in next week, and he's got a very interesting story to share. I'm excited to talk to him about that. So last thoughts you would like to leave the listeners with. Can I, can I steal a line from Ray Dalio? Of course. If you're looking back at who you were a year ago and you don't think you were stupid, you're not growing fast enough. Man, that's a lot of growth every year. <laughs> Ray Dalio did it. Did he? Man. He owns the biggest hedge fund on earth. He's done some amazing things. There's no question about that. But man, to look back at the previous year and feel that guy was dumb, that's, that's some big lofty I mean, goals. I could say for my last 10 to 15 years, I can easily say that. That's awesome. I mean, do you think you could say that? I think I've done a lot of stupid things. I don't think I've done enough stupid things every year. <laughs> <laughs> what, let me ask you this. On your highest growth periods, were you doing, were you doing stupid things? Of course. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I just have to sit back and, and review those. But I think that's that's an amazing quote, right? And I think that if everyone could aspire to that, and I think it's pretty close in line with that book, right? It was a chase the line. Yeah. Right. It's very close. I think it's just on, on the flip side of that. So I think uh, that's that's amazing. If someone wants to get a hold of you, actually, there was a website you were talking about earlier. What was it? Yeah, so we, for, for your audience, if you're interested, we have a, a tax program on how to leverage the fourth pillar, taxes, and how it works with real estate. Uh, we have a workshop on tax that we made for your audience, and we have a, if you're curious about Turnkey, we have a Turnkey workshop for your audience. It's cashflowtactics.com slash Steve Trang. Awesome. And I'm not sure if it's up today, but I know that the team's working on it. We'll, we'll have it up by the time it... When do you think this will drop on iTunes? Tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow It'll morning. be... A little bit after it drops on iTunes. <laughs> All right, perfect. <laughs> that works. You guys are fast. Oh, yeah. Uh, so 
if someone wanted to get a hold of you and connect with you, how would they do that? Uh, Instagram, either at Cashflow Tactics or Jimmy Brillen on Instagram. All right, perfect. So this is a really fun show. This was awesome. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you guys for watching. Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors.